This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, we have an exclusive look ahead at next year's legislative session with four stellar members of the state legislature. During this hour-long Zoom town hall, we also look back over the many successes from this session on climate, health care, progressive taxation, police reform, and more. Join us for a conversation with Representatives Jesse Johnson, Joe Fitzgibbon, Noel Frame, and Senator Emily Randall. That is next. As you may know, in this year's legislative session, Democratic leadership focused on four areas, the pandemic, racial justice and equity, the climate and economic recovery. Tonight, we have with us four legislators who did exceptional work in each area. Representative Jesse Johnson represents the 30th legislative district and he's here to discuss police reform. Talking about healthcare tonight is Senator Emily Randall from the 26th legislative district. And we'll be speaking uh, about progressive taxation and economic recovery, two of my favorite things, with Representative Noel Frame of the 36th LD. And lastly, Representative Joe Fitzgibbon, Fitzgibbon excuse me, of the 34th LD is here to talk about climate. Over the next hour, we're going to hear from each of them about this year's legislative successes, and we'll be bringing you an exclusive preview of what's on tap for next year's ledge session. We're also going to be talking about how we can all work together to accomplish our common goals. And with that, I'll turn things back over to my friend, Stephen Cox. Well, thank you, Kat, and welcome everybody. And yeah, I wanna put a big uh, yellow highlighter on that last part about how we're all going to be working together with our legislators to uh, achieve some great things in next session. And we are excited that everybody is here because uh, look, we're gonna blink and before we know it, uh, the next session is going to be here. And we know that our guests are absolutely thinking about that right now and how they would like to to shape things. So let us begin our conversation with our friend, Representative Jesse Johnson. He sits on the House Appropriations and Community and Economic Development Committees, and he is vice chair of the Public Safety Committee. Representative Johnson, welcome. And before we begin, just let us all say a collective congratulations on your new arrival. It's so exciting. Congrats to you. Thank you so much, Stefan. I really appreciate it. I promise not to ask any questions about sleeping other than just to say, I hope you're getting some. Um, <laughs> So uh, I, I just think I want to start with you by talking about just how extraordinary this session was in terms of police reform. So this year, Governor Inslee signed 12 bills into law uh, on this subject, which, uh, to, to my knowledge, um, is I, I'm not sure if this has ever been done before, uh, including two of your bills. Uh, were you surprised by how much legislation made it through in this year's session? I actually was not surprised. I was more um, hopeful before we started session that this would be the case, uh, especially after last year's protests and the tremendous solidarity that the public showed um, for the black and brown community um, after George Floyd. And so I was hoping that we would have uh, a response in the legislature where we responded to that moment. And I think that we did that. Um, we had a year of, of meetings with uh, stakeholders across the board, with community, with law enforcement, uh, we all came to the table and we had some really tough conversations. And uh, I think what we landed on was that we needed accountability. We needed uh, the scope of policing to change in our state and we needed a new standard around use of force. And I think a lot of that was accomplished because of the work of, of community last summer uh, with the protests, with uh, the advocacy work and the momentum just carried its way into the legislative session. I think we did a good job at codifying what the public wanted. 
I would agree 100%. And, you know, I want to get your take on something generally that has come up lately, which is we know that crime is on the rise right now. And unfortunately, a lot of people are are claiming that uh, any police reform is somehow anathema to public safety, is a threat to public safety. And I'm wondering, how do you think we all collectively as progressives should be responding to this? Well, I mean, every state had to review its policies after last summer with with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and locally with Manny Ellis. And um, the goal was to root out bias and violence in our policing. And uh, a lot of the work that went into this was because of community. And so when I hear this was a, a, a handcuffing on police, so to speak, um, then then I'm like, well, community is actually what these bills stemmed from. And these were written in direct response to what we've seen and what we've heard from our community. So that was the reason why we passed these bills to reduce uh, the power of, of the police in terms of physical force and promote de-escalation and less lethal enforcement of the law. So that's the core of the work. Um, and it may surprise you, but many of these new laws simply codify existing practices around de-escalation, around use of force and police accountability. So. Um, 940 passed a couple years ago, and the voters obviously approved that, and we wanted to see those standards uh, amplified in our state statutes, and I think that we did that. And of course, we have a long way to go to get to justice, which is to prevent those uh, violences from ever occurring, but I think we got some accountability in the work, and we have new policies in place that are going to help get to less violence in our communities. It's simultaneously optimistic, and it's also very troubling that we have to keep making uh, new laws to clarify existing laws. And to that, I want to ask you about two of your bills, um, because some state law enforcement has been claiming that they are unclear in some way. And I'm talking about 1054. This regards use of police tactics. Uh, 1310 establishes a statewide standard for uh, use of police force. First and foremost, I'll just ask you, what is law enforcement claiming is unclear in each of these laws? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, right now, um, both in 1054 and 1310, um, they're basically taking a really rigid interpretation of the law. So you know, when we say um, that probable cause has to be established before um, an arrest, which is something that a lot of our state statutes already have, um, they're basically saying, well, we're just going to leave the scene if there's only reasonable suspicion, when obviously that's not the legislative intent. Uh, the attorney general came out with a memo last week clarifying our intent, basically saying um, officers can respond to any crime. They can't, you know, refuse to come to a scene of a mental health crisis or a domestic violence dispute or a burglary just because they only have reasonable suspicion. Um, what we're asking is for them to get more questions answered, for them to do a little bit more investigatory work and make sure that they have the right suspect. And we don't have an instance like John T. Williams where the wrong person is killed or Daniel Caravius or, or Manny Ellis where they're killed in a mental health crisis or Charlena Lyles where they're killed in a, in a domestic violence situation. So. You know, I think I think we have a lot of work to do to get on the same page with law enforcement. There's a lot of good actors in law enforcement that are doing the right thing. Um, we've came together with the Criminal Justice Training Commission this week to clarify that uh, police will not be sanctioned for doing their jobs and doing it right. Um, what we're trying to limit is excessive force and lethal force. And so um, I think that's the main question right now is um, with this rigid interpretation, do we have to go back and do a legislative clarification I'm not really a fix because the policy will remain intact, but a clarification saying that, you know, um, you can do these things that are currently in state statute, like uh, involuntary treatment or mental health response and not be sanctioned and not be uh, held liable unless it's excessive force. 
And so that's that's really what we're getting to at its core. We, I wanted to mention that you, along those lines, you and Representative Roger Goodman, the chair of the committee, uh, recently met with uh, Attorney General Bob Ferguson to discuss all this. What came out of that meeting? Yeah, we had a had a meeting with his office, and and uh, you know, first of all, I, I think you know when you're dealing with the AG, obviously, um, you know, uh, officially, we can't say exactly every line by line what happened in that meeting because sure. there's going to be a public opinion um, that it's going to be released in about six months or less um, where we have questions from our offices from the governor's office um, these are questions that the washington state association of sheriffs and police chiefs submitted to us to give to the ag and so there'll be public opinions released defining physical force it will uh, define probable cause um, it will basically say that you know, officers have a threshold before they can use physical force. And so they'll, uh, the AG will be clarifying that. But what did come out of it was that um, officers can respond to any crime. Like I said, there's nothing preventing them from responding to uh, community well-being check or uh, responding to, you know, any crime that, uh, that they're called to. But, you know, what we want to do is make sure that, you know, they're, they're doing the right thing once they get there. And so that's where we're at now is making sure that they understand um, what the, expect the expectation is um, in these laws. And, and what our law said was, you know, we just want officers to only use force when they have to and to use de-escalation, use their tactical questioning that uh, they're trained on in the academy. And surprisingly, uh, a lot of the new officers, we did a survey, are, are on board with this at the, the training academy. Um, it's, it's the officers that have been there a long time um, that don't want to see the paradigm shift. And so I think as progressives, we have to keep promoting um, this idea that if officers don't want to show up to crimes, that's playing right into the hands of, you know, the abolish the police, the defund the police movement that so many people were conveying last summer because they're basically talking themselves out of a job mm -hmm. by reducing the scope of their own work, by saying they're not going to respond. Um, we need them to respond. And I think the vast majority of community wants them to respond. They just want them to respond in a safe, an effective way that roots out bias and, um, you know, roots out stereotyping and profiling and make sure that they just do their job. That is precisely the uh, the kind of the delta that I was uh, asking you about earlier and what, extraordinarily well articulated on that. We would like to welcome Bellevue City Council Member Janice Son. Welcome to you tonight. Uh, I want to shift gears now and talk about your thoughts on next session. Uh, and one of the bills that didn't make it through last session is 1202. This is the Qualified Immunity Bill. This was even opposed by some Democrats. Are you aware of why they opposed it? Well, I mean, I think um, a big part of the reason was we wanted we didn't want to put the cart before the horse in terms of um, we have these standards. We had a use of force standard in 1310. Uh, we were clarifying what tactics we want police to use in 1054. Um, we had Senator Dingra's uh, duty to intervene bill and the desert bill. So we had so many moving parts. And obviously, accountability is a constellation of all these parts. But um, we didn't want to put the liability piece in place until we had those parts in place first. And I think that's why ultimately we decided to hold as a caucus on 1202. And obviously, Rep. Neelan Tai did a ton of stakeholder work on that bill, <clears throat> and we're hoping to bring it back uh, for next session. But you know, I think I think that was the reason that we ultimately decided to to put it on hold. But you know, in terms of what's coming up, you know, forward, we have to look at uh, racism across all of our institutions. Uh, I think the pandemic has highlighted um, what's what's happening in public health. Um, education has a lot of work, housing, economic development. It's not just law enforcement. 
Um, but the thing with law enforcement and police is that's state sanctioned badge and a gun. Um, and, and we have fought to transform policing for the past 50, 60 years. And police have ultimately only gotten more power, more um, unions, more, more funding. And so um, I think we have to just have more accountability in that space. And a lot of the bills we put in place last year, it's going to be interesting to see how they land in implementation. Well, you know, I'm just going to open it up to you then, because I was also going to ask about the community oversight bill, uh, 1203. Um, but I'll just ask you, what is on your mind for the next session? How would you like to advance the cause uh, of police reform, given uh, the ground that we have gained so far? I, th- I think it's it's really um, getting back to the basics. So when I say that um, we have our standards now in place, we have our scope of the work. Okay, let's get back into training. I'm really um, impressed with a bill that Senator Patty Kuderer is dropping that is around training that's uh, basically removing uh, the point system where police that have previously served in the military get more points to come into police and focuses more on police living in their communities that they serve um, and making sure that we have uh, you know, police that understand implicit bias, understand um, you know, uh, de-escalation. And so we're not just saying, you know, police coming off the battlefield are the right folks to wear the uniform. Uh, We want to get back to a guardianship mentality. And a lot of that has to do with how we're recruiting, how we're retaining, and how we're uh, training our officers. So we're looking at that. Um, I think the community oversight piece is important because localized oversight is is better, um, the data shows, than statewide centralized oversight. So Um, Those are the two pieces I'm looking at. Obviously, in public safety, we have a lot of work around the criminal justice reform piece. uh, And so um, that's going to be a space that I'll be entering into with my colleagues as well in public safety. Um, But I think in in policing, we just have to look at how we're investing. And if the results aren't there, um, let's change what we're doing. Let's strategize on what could work better. We will let you get back to your family and your son in just a moment. Just a couple more questions before uh, for you. I, I would like to shift gears a little bit and talk, uh, get, get your thoughts on this year's legislative session and the way in which it was done. It was almost entirely online because of the pandemic, and obviously everybody's hoping to resume in person next year. But I'm wondering, are there aspects, at least in terms of the way that you got to interact with constituents, that you would like to keep from the online session? Yeah, I love the the virtual testimony. I think we, you know, to get to hear from so many people across the state and, you know, really what what keeps me going in this in this process of being in public policy is um, how we interact with the public and being able to say that we had a collaborative process. And that's what's something I'm so proud of about the police process was it was collaboration, collaboration and and um, partnership focused. It, we, ne- we didn't necessarily get to consensus on everything, obviously, but um, the collaboration was was really a high degree this year um, that I'm hoping we can replicate going forward. Um, but I do think, you know, in terms of uh, bipartisanship, it's going to be important to uh, build relationships across the aisle um, uh, to get, you know, ultimately public policy that meets the community expectations in our state. So I'm hoping that going back in person or a hybrid version may help with that because that was very difficult and probably, um, you know, got a little bit less... Uh, um, you know, it, it, we were less able to do that being in a virtual session, but I think the, the remote testimony should stay. I will uh, allow Andrew Villeneuve of the Northwest Progressive Institute to ask the final question here. Um, and this, I think, is something that everybody watching tonight is, is keenly interested to know the answer to. What priority do you hope to work on or set of priorities uh, in 2022 that you feel could most benefit from our grassroots lobbying and progressive energy? 
Hmm. You know, um, a couple of things. I, I think for me, I want to really get back to, um, you know, the work that, that I'm super passionate about. Obviously, uh, uh, police reform was something I kind of got thrust into because I needed to. Um, and, and the moment called for it. But I think uh, education, um, I have a bill around establishing um, black history as a endorsement for certification in our state. Um, Cause I would think it's really important that children see themselves in the curriculum and having that black history across seventh through 12th grade um, will be a huge benefit. Um, also working on a bill with some high school students in my, in my district about mental, excuse mental health days for, for students every month so that they can focus on their mental health. I think a um, the uptick in, in youth gun violence and suicide rates, um, a lot of it having to do with the pandemic, we have to get back to focusing on our young people and getting them the resources and supports that they need. So I'm hoping, you know, those two bills in particular, there's a few others, but I can get some some advocacy and support from, from my progressive friends uh, so we can get those through. Well, you know how to get in touch with us when you need us. So Representative Johnson, it is always such a pleasure, my friend. I appreciate you. Thanks for coming on uh, on tonight. And again, congratulations. Thank you so much. And we will turn next to our friend Emily Randall. Senator Emily Randall is the chair of the Senate Higher Education and Workforce Development Committee. She also sits on the Transportation Committee and the Health and Long-Term Care Committee, and she is here to talk with us about her work on health care. Senator Emily Randall, we are so happy to see you. How are you, my friend? I am so glad to be in community with you all tonight. I've just been reflecting on, on how good it feels to be back in spaces um, that, you know, necessarily haven't been in for a while because of session, because of COVID, to be with friends and like-minded folks is really exciting. Welcome back. We are so happy to have you in this space. So, you know, uh, we want to get your take on a few, let's let's start here on a few of the successes from this year's session. And I want to start with your bill, uh, 5399. This established the Universal Health Care Commission. Um, this would explore pathways to universal health care in Washington. Uh, last year, you established the Universal Health Care Work Group. I'm wondering if you can distinguish those two things for us. How does the Health Care Commission build on what was done by the work group? And, and maybe why is the commission necessary to move the work along? Good question. So, you know, as you mentioned, we funded and begun the work of the Universal Healthcare Work Group in the 2019 session and worked for some time, you know, with a broad group of stakeholders to, you know, drill down on where the gaps are and what options existed for us. Um, the work group suggested a number of options for paths forward, some healthcare for everyone right away, no matter the cost, and some more incremental approach. And one of the recommendations was to create this commission, which is similar but different than work that has happened in other states. Um, really important and exciting to me about this commission that brings agencies together is that they are empowered to um, identify and apply for federal Medicaid waivers without further legislative direction. So often when we work to expand Medicaid, like we did this past year with postpartum Medicaid, covering um, you know, new birth parents from 60 days to a year, we had to pass a law just to direct the healthcare authority to apply for that waiver. This commission doesn't need to come back to the legislative table when they see a waiver that they can, 
they know will um, better expand healthcare coverage in Washington. Uh, they're also building a plan to cover everyone. And it's, it's really exciting. Um, it flew a little bit under the radar this year, I think, for a lot of folks, but, you know, has been called some of the most progressive uh, universal health care policy coming out of any state in a decade. And I can't wait to see what this commission does um, to keep working for Washingtonians. Is it getting ahead of ourselves to ask if and when they produce a workable plan for universal health care, what happens to it next? Well, I think um, some of my fellow healthcare advocates will be excited to introduce policy that comes out of this commission. You know, I, I'm certainly not saying that this is the be all end all that we're done, but I, I'm looking, continuing to look for ways to expand coverage for Washingtonians to simplify our system to lower costs. And we did a lot of a lot of pieces of that over this last session. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think what I'm hearing from members often is that people simply want the universal health care in Washington, and they see this approach as very incremental. Do you share that concern? Well, when I wear my activist hat, sure. I feel like <laughs> I want everything right now. I want no one to have to wait, you know, go to the emergency room to get the care that they need. I want um, providers in every part of our district that don't have a wait time. I want folks to feel trust and safety when they go to the doctor to know that they're going to get what they need. But I also, especially now on the inside, realize the huge barriers, the cost barriers, the implementation barriers, the political will barriers that lay in our way. And so this, um, this is slower than is ideal, but is, I think, building a path towards really powerful and sustainable policy. Political will barriers. Yeah, that's <laughs> that is probably the most formidable of the obstacles that you uh, just presented there. I want to ask you about another important piece of legislation. This was 5202. This created what are called health equity zones. You were a co-sponsor of this bill. So it is my understanding that this allows the Department of Health to identify communities that have different health outcomes due to a number of reasons, where they live. Um, the, the, actually, I will just ask you, what constitutes a health equity zone and and what are some examples? Yeah, good question. So I was actually just, for another reason, playing around on the Department of Health website today and looking at some maps of huge healthcare disparities. Some of them, as you mentioned, Stefan, are based on where folks live, geographic barriers, where everyone in this particular zip code or geographic area has a barrier of access to care, has um, a lack of access. Um, and then sometimes when we look at the map, there, it's a different color because it, within one geographic zone, only folks of a particular racial or ethnic category are experiencing barriers. Sometimes it's income level. So there are different ways to slice the data, to look at where the holes are in our system, to look at where, you know, we're unhealthy. And um, this was a great bill that Senator Kaiser, you know, took the lead on, but I was so happy to partner on that allows, um, allows us to identify based on data and also allows communities to self-identify, to build stronger networks, um, to think strategically about partnerships, to not just, um, you know, have a one-size-fits-all approach to how to solve our health equity needs. Um, I was out on the Key Peninsula, a really rural part of my district today, and talking about some of the huge healthcare challenges that are true for everyone in the key, but are especially true for our non-English speaking immigrant communities that are 
um, really isolated. And so I'm hopeful to see what plans communities come up with together when we're identifying these health equity zones to look at the partnerships that are being forged. I think it's really empowering. I agree. It's, it's a very smart uh, way to approach it and move it away from, as you say, this one size fits all uh, approach that we often too often have um, for, for health care and, and public health as far as that goes. Uh, before we get into next session, I also want to ask you about 5203. This allows the state health care authority to enter into partnerships to purchase just generic drugs. This seems like a game changer for drug prices. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, it's so exciting. Um, I, I think we all knew even before this session that prescription drug costs are something that we need to get a handle on that, you know, it's a huge cost to the state and also to individuals. And so any way that we can look to, um, you know, create more affordable pathways to folks um, to get their their um, prescription needs met, the better. It, you all, we always um, run into opposition when we're dealing with pharmaceutical pricing, pharmaceutical costs, um, you know, care delivery in this way. Um, but I think that there was a huge amount of political will um, to tackle this problem. I think there's more interest in different ways that we can um, continue to come back and uh, continue lowering prescription drug costs, particular prescriptions, um, increasing access. I was having a conversation the other day about um, HIV medication and the challenges in getting um, single drug cocktails as opposed to multiple drug cocktails to particularly, you know, high risk patients. Um, there's more to do, but this is a game changer, I think, for our state. And I look forward to tracking those cost decreases as the years go by. I actually do too. I'm, I'm a little nerdy about that sort of thing, so I'll be watching that closely as well. Um, as we talk about the next session, I think the appropriate way to, to sort of frame this is to talk about the pandemic and particularly the, the Delta variant and potentially the Lambda variant, which could be carrying over. We're, we're really not sure at this point into next session. I'll just ask you, are you thinking about ways that legislation can help as we may face future variants down the road? Yeah. Um... I mean, I think at the top of my mind is money, how we fund the public health, um, continued public health um, efforts to keep our community safe. You know, you may remember that at the end of the 2020 legislative session, we passed um, a, a bipartisan bill that was, you know, a, a few million dollars to um, help public health officials tackle what was then the very, very early stages of the pandemic. And we quickly learned how little of a drop in the bucket, you know, that investment was. We came back this legislative session and spent so much more money to fund the approach. It's not only money, but money is is important. It's the tools that our public health officials are able to use to um, you know, meet the emerging and changing needs to continue marketing to our community members who are hardest to reach, who need the most convincing to stand up against the misinformation um, that is spreading so rapidly um, on all of our Facebook and Instagram feeds um, that has been long brewing under the surface. And, um, you know, further, we saw some policy to um, strengthen and make more representative um, our, 
our public health departments across the state, you know, led by my colleague Marcus Riccelli, um, you know, hit some bumps in the road there to try and figure out what was the right approach for the moment. Um, but I think we'll continue to see work, um, hopefully led by our on the ground public health officials um, that informs our our policymaking um, on the public health side. As far as what next legislative session um, looks like, I think it's too soon to say, but um, I think remote testimony is here to stay. Good. Thank you. Thank you. I, I actually was uh, was going to ask you that later to see what you thought uh, some of the things that would uh, be uh, ideal to carry over from the uh, online session. You know, since we're, we're, we're talking now about the next session and things that we hope carry over, uh, I want to talk about a couple of bills and get your thoughts very briefly. Um, first is the hospital acquisitions bill. This is 5335, which you sponsored. Uh, this has to do with hospital acquisitions. There has been a great deal of concern about this. Hospitals being required by religious based systems like Franciscan, acquiring Virginia Mason. Um, one of the concerns, one of the several concerns is religious directives that limit access to things like end-of-life treatment, uh, reproductive health, gender reassignment care, and that these things are, are things that patients may not even be informed about. Talk a little bit about how your bill would address this. I assume it's coming back, yes? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. So uh, next steps for the bill, we're doing some redrafting um, in coalition with advocates um, as well as with agencies. But the the bill um, is designed to better regulate mergers and acquisitions, not just for hospitals, but across healthcare systems. Um, I live in Kitsap County where we only have access to Catholic hospitals. And that happened because our local hospital district was acquired and we that uh, by CHI Franciscan, it continues to merge with other, you know, Common Spirit, with Virginia Mason, with you know, other entities. And what we're seeing is not only um, non-secular healthcare is our only option, but we're seeing a health system that is driven by a giant multi-state corporation that doesn't know and understand and isn't invested in the needs of our community members. So I think it's not only about religion, but it's about this, um, you know, corporatization and conglomeration of our health systems that re really makes them so impersonal and driven by all sorts of factors that aren't patient-centric um, care. I, do want to call out that there are amazing, incredible health providers working on the front lines in those hospitals, and I'm grateful sure. that they are there looking out for our neighbors. But I'm even, um, and especially hearing from those frontline workers, from nurses, about the decisions that are made, especially during this pandemic, by those out of state, um, you know, big corporate agencies makes. Um, makes it feel like we have a lot of work to do. There's been some done. My my seatmate. Michelle Caldier did introduce some years ago a policy to try and give the attorney general some review authority. But what we've seen from the mergers happening um, since then is that it's not enough. We need um, we need to make sure that when when these agencies are considering and applying for the ability to merge and to acquire other, especially secular health systems, that um, they 
promise and are held to continuing to deliver um, comprehensive healthcare for folks in community because what we've created in Kitsap is a healthcare desert. Um, if you need comprehensive reproductive health care, if you need end of life care, um, if you need gender affirming treatment, you have to go elsewhere. And that is not equity. So rewriting, we're reintroducing, we'll see um, what the strongest policy is that we can um, we can pass this year and it will be really helpful to have you know our progressive allies at indivisible across the state there to keep pushing this forward because it's so important you keep reading my mind that was going to be my next question in terms of what we could do to help along with that and i know that we've actually covered that on the podcast and that people are very very concerned about this and so you can absolutely anticipate our help on this um before i let you go uh just very quickly um 1141 is the, and this is sort of related, the Enhanced Death with Dignity Act. This would, among other things, uh, expand the categories of health professionals who may provide end-of-life assistance. There's more to it than that. But any thoughts on this bill and whether or not it'll be reintroduced? Yeah. So um, 1141 has held its place on um on the reading calendar, so it's still alive. I'm not sure yet if Representative Rude, the prime sponsor, intends to redraft and reintroduce, um, but I think we, you can certainly see further hearings and conversation about this really important policy. Um, one thing that I want to flag that was a challenge um, with 1141 this year um, is that because um, the task force wasn't funded in the previous budget cycle that would have informed this policy, um, a, a number of folks from the disability community, self-advocates and others felt like they were left out of the drafting process. Um, and as the co-chair of the Joint Legislative Executive Committee on Planning for Aging and Disability Issues. That's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been, and a sister of someone with disabilities, it's been really important for me to be an ally and an amplifier of the voices of our neighbors with disabilities. And so my promise to Representative Rude and you know to the advocates of this policy is that I will, do, I will do the work to help bring in those voices and make sure that we can, you know, pass a policy that does what we need it to do while also not ignoring, um, you know, what we're hearing from our neighbors with disabilities. We are behind the clock. And so I will just ask you if there's anything else that you are working on that you want to bring to our attention. Um, you know, speaking of that, we have some big disability legislation on the horizon. Um, advocates from all over the state, family members, individuals are working on what they're calling North Star goals, kind of setting the vision for Washington. And um, and I'm really excited and, and hope that they choose me to introduce it. Um, Washington, you may not know this, but is one of the lowest ranked States for investments in our disability community. And uh, Rep Frame has been an incredible partner with me as I learn how we navigate this on the legislative side. And I look forward to making more progress next session. Well, I, I really appreciate you uh, doing, first and foremost, all the work that you uh, that you do. Um, I also just want to thank you for being an incredibly optimistic and positive person. You are always such a joy to talk to. I always feel better when I talk to you. So uh, thank you for taking the time tonight. We really, really appreciate it. Senator Emily Randall, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. 
And we will turn next to our friend, Representative Noelle Frame. She is chair of the House Finance Committee, and she also sits on the Appropriations and Community and Economic Development Committees. She, you will note, is a prime sponsor of HB 1406, the Wealth Tax Bill, and she is here to talk with us about progressive taxation. Representative Frame, how are, how are you tonight? I'm great, and I'm joined by uh, Representative Baby. This is my son, yes. Holden, who is coming it. out of focus. Oh, my um, goodness. Hello, Holden. How are you, buddy? Um, so I'm on double duty tonight, so we'll see how we do. Um, okay. I'm happy to be with y'all again. Okay, well, I'll see if I can direct some some questions uh, to Holden, you know, if he likes Cheerios over Goldfish or something like that. But I just want to start with the session's big win. Um, so after years of trying, the capital gains tax finally passed. Um, I'm just going to start by asking you to toot your own horn a little bit here. What was your role in getting this passed? Uh, great question. Um, I, you know, I got an award this year as Coach of the Year from the Washington Community Alliance, and that about sums it up. Uh, coach, uh, strategist, uh, and partner to uh, Prime Sponsor June Robinson in the Senate, um, House Prime Sponsor Tana Sen. They were um, not true companion bills, but obviously both capital gains bills. And as the chair of the Committee of Jurisdiction on the House, uh, really stewarding it, but also st- setting the context and telling the story of the need for reform to our state's tax code uh, so that it could be understood why it was such an important piece of legislation in the broader context of Washington state's tax code. Well, yeah, and you tell such a compelling story. I mean, you and I have talked about this quite a bit on the podcast. And I'll just ask you, because it's so compelling and because to, to most ears that, who are listening and, and watching tonight, it, it makes so much sense. Why do you think it has been such a challenge, even with Democratic majorities in both chambers, to get this piece of legislation passed? You know, I think we still have colleagues who uh, treat all taxes the same and don't differentiate for their design and who they tax and how they tax and how they can be tools of reform and tools of, uh, you know, equity in in the tax code. If you just treat them all the same, uh, they're just another tax. And uh, we've unfortunately faced that uh, challenge. You know, the Republican narrative around taxes is very simple and effective. It's no, right. that is their no, their narrative, no. Uh, and so to tell a compelling story that overcomes such a simplistic and effective narrative, uh, it's hard. And, you know, frankly, not all of our colleagues were quite there yet. And um, thankfully, some of them who maybe weren't there in years past got to it uh, and were really a part of that story. And particularly as we coupled the passage of the capital gains tax with the working families tax rebate and could really tell the story about giving some money back to our low-income households who are so disproportionately impacted by our upside down and regressive tax code, that seemed to really work. And I think a lot of people outside the chamber um, who, you know, taxes is complicated, they're, t- they're complicated, uh, but people got that and really appreciated that we were trying to do some work on both ends of the economic spectrum. Right. I mean, taxation is equity. It's such an important message. And, you know, it, it really does help us to move away from this, you know, uh, shrinking government to the point where you can drown it in the bathtub uh, kind of message that, that we have heard since the 1980s about taxation. It's become a four-letter word. Um, so I, I will just, uh, along those lines, I, I move to ask you, I know there's a lawsuit. Um, the Seattle Times just recently reported on it. It's being led by Rob. McKenna, um, what can you tell us about that? Do we expect a lot to stand? Uh, we do expect a lot to stand and we, because we believe strongly and have case law to support that it is an excise tax. It is a capital gains excise tax. It is a tax on a sale or exchange, which is the privilege of a sale or exchange, a choice that you make. It is not a property tax. Uh, frankly, 
what is a property tax is the wealth tax, which I know we're about to talk about. And it's the same type of asset. The wealth tax is a property tax when you own the asset. The capital gains excise tax is a tax when you sell the asset, specifically financial uh, intangible property. Uh, so it's clear as day to us uh, that it's an excise tax, but we'll see what the court has to say about it. Let's do go ahead and talk about the wealth tax, as, as you predicted. So um, this would impose a 1% tax on net worth above a billion dollars. It's very straightforward in its language. And I will actually encourage people to go through and read the bill, because honestly, a lot of bills are very dry and legal ease. Not this one. The, the, it, it is it extraordinarily uh, well written. It's, it's a gripping read. Um, just very briefly, if you would, for us, what are the arguments for taxing wealth and holdings versus taxing labor? And I know that this has to do with equity issues, as you were talking about earlier. But just if you could kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Um, you know, let me actually take one step back because, you know, frankly, because we don't currently tax labor in Washington state tax law, that's not quite the argument that we're making. You know, we're making an argument around parity in the in basically property tax. Um, you know, we aimed when you talk about fairness in the tax code, you kind of talk about two different concepts. One is sort of consistency in the tax code. That's one concept of fairness. And then capacity to uh, pay taxes or ability to pay taxes based on your financial status is another. The, the whole thing with the wealth tax, it's about consistency in the tax code. If you're going to have a one percent tax on real property like your home, why wouldn't we also have a one percent tax on financial intangible property, which are the assets that are owned and, and help with wealth building? amongst the ultra wealthy in Washington state and across the world. So to me, it's a matter of issue. It's an issue of parity and consistency in the tax code around property tax uh, versus labor. Now, if you want to talk about the federal tax code, uh, you know, the federal tax code right now uh, rewards wealth over work. So if you are a working person, you are taxed a certain way. If you are a wealthy person, your effective tax rate, as we saw, um, in the ProPublica study and with some additional amazing analysis by Dorothy Brown around the racial equity uh, imbalance uh, in the uh, tax code paid by the wealthy, which is, you know, P.S. mostly white men in the billionaire category. Um, it's it's ridiculous. The tax code absolutely favors wealth over work. And it's high time that we fix that at the state level and the local and the federal level. Pardon me. So what can we as progressive activists here uh, in Washington do uh, in this next session to help push this along? So I think what we really need is advocacy on the Senate side. And, you know, don't no disrespect for the Senate. We didn't try terribly hard this session on the Senate side because the Senate was, of course, focused on capital gains at the time that we were focused on wealth tax in the House. And it was a new bill this year, not new concept. The concept of an intangible property tax has been around a while, but the specific financial intangible property with an exemption of a billion dollars, that concept uh, is what was new in uh, my bill, House Bill 1406. But we need a hearing on the Senate side. We need the Senate to have a conversation about it. You know, the bill uh, was pretty strong out the gates. Um, half the Democratic caucus on the House and half the Democratic caucus on the Senate side co-sponsored the legislation. Uh, we've done polling that shows it's extraordinarily popular uh, with the public. But it's tax policy. It's very technical. And I will say, as an example, by virtue of having a hearing in the House side and working the bill, there were some drafting issues that came up from that were identified by, of all places, Russell Investments, because they're a wealth management company. And they identified some drafting pieces that said, did you really mean to do it this way? Because that gets the wealth managers, not the actual people holding the property. And we said, nope, that 
definitely was not the point. We're not trying to get you, the manager of the assets, but in fact, the person who owns them to pay the tax. And we figured that out, that that was uh, ambiguous in the drafting. And that came about through a hearing and a process. We need that same thoughtful uh, consideration on the Senate side so we can work through very technical issues um, through the bill um, again next year. Well, I think that uh, certainly there's going to be a lot of of eyes on it uh, and I think working collaboratively to make sure that uh, every, uh, how's this go, every T is crossed, every I is dotted there, I got it. Uh, Very quickly about infrastructure, this is kind of exciting. Um, As chair of the Finance Committee and certainly as a member of the Appropriations Committee, I imagine that you are watching the federal infrastructure packages, both the current by partisan bill, the $1 trillion bill, and then also the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, whatever that winds up being, ultimately is going to result in a lot of money, billions of dollars for us here in Seattle. Uh, the, the reporting in the Seattle Times says that there's money coming for our airports, our highways, plus things like salmon restoration, forest thinning, broadband, electric buses, replacing the I-5 bridge over the Columbia River. How are you thinking in your position about uh, how and where the money should get spent? Thanks. Great question. So um, I am first and foremost excited for what it might mean for our transportation budget, um, which of course is a separate committee of which I am not a member. But what I can tell you is that transportation revenue was already declining pre-pandemic. We are heavily reliant on the gas tax as a funding mechanism. Um, And because of the adoption of electric and hybrid cars, gas consumption is going down, which is a great thing, but it also undermines our revenue sources. And then the pandemic happened and people start stopped driving and they stopped using transit. Uh, they, I mean, I bet some people probably didn't even register their cars um, because they couldn't afford to in the pandemic and revenue from car tabs was down. So I am first and foremost really excited about what this may mean for our transportation budget, which is really uh, needing those funds. Um, other pieces, whether it's childcare or broadband or other parts that come down, I hope, you know, we had to do a supplemental budget and then of course a biennial budget. And that's how we allocated and appropriated those dollars this year. We were very much guided by what we were seeing in our economic data. And at the time when our revenue was bouncing back after um, the pandemic had kicked in and was starting to bounce back, we were still seeing that Washington state households something like a third of Washington state households were still struggling to cover their basic expenses. And so I think if we continue to be guided by doing the most that we can for those who are struggling the most and really targeting our investments, um, that's gonna be good for the Washington state economy because things like us pumping in money to the working families tax rebate, for instance, which mirrored those those, uh, federal stimulus checks, when we got those dollars out into those uh, households, it came right back into the economy because they needed to spend it. So we need to think about sort of that triple bottom line kind of approach, like who's it going to help the most? How's it going to get money circulating back into the community to help our small businesses that gets our revenue bouncing back at the local and state level level so they can reinvest those dollars? So that's the approach I'm thinking about. Are you telling me that trickle down economics does not work? Am I, am I getting that from you? Out, <laughs> it totally doesn't. And I got to tell you, one of the, my greatest joys of this session was watching the Republican members of the legislature support the working families tax rebate and absolutely make our economic argument about getting pocket money into the pockets of working people because they spend it and support the economy. Our message is working on economics, on taxes. We just got to keep going. I'm seeing lots of smiling faces. Uh, I know you got to go. I'll just let you, I'll, I will ask you uh, as as you head off into the night, um, is there anything uh, that you, anything else that you would like to talk about that you were thinking about for next session that you could use our help with? Great question. I just ask everybody to keep, uh, 
keep an eye on the work that I do all around juvenile justice. I took a little bit of a break this last session um, because we were in a remote session. It was my first session as chair and I had also had a baby in the previous year. Uh, you know, I'm really proud of the work that I have been involved in over this last several, I've been in the legislature five years and have passed major reforms to the juvenile criminal legal system to give our kids a second chance. Uh, and when you look at the deepest parts of our system, our, um, you know, kind of um, high security juvenile facilities, um, they are upwards of 70 or 80% black and brown children. They are the epitome of what's wrong with the criminal legal system and it's wrong and it needs to be undone. And I will continue to do work uh, in that space. Um, so I hope that people will be supportive of, of that work and frankly also work around youthful sexual offenders. Um, it's really traumatic, tough stuff. It's something in my history as a victim of childhood sexual abuse and a age appropriate behavioral health response to kids who act out sexually. Uh, that legislation was bipartisan and actually made it um, almost all the way across the Senate floor from Senator Jeannie Darneal. Um, and I'll be uh, taking up the mantle again this year uh, leading really deeply difficult conversations about complex behavioral health issues um, and getting our kids uh, back on track once they've uh, made mistakes. Um, they deserve a second chance and they deserve a childhood. Thank you so much for your work on that and, um, th and, and so much more and everything that you do. Uh, you know where to find us, as I've said before, so uh, please stay in touch. Uh, Noel Freeman, Holden, good night, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. So we are going to turn next to Representative Joe Fitzgibbon. He sits on the Appropriations, Rural Development, and Agriculture and Natural Resources Committees, and he is chair of the Environment and Energy Committee, and he is joining us tonight to talk about climate. Representative Fitzgibbon, tonight, uh, we are so happy to see you. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy. To, I'm excited to chat about our progress on, on climate change. And there was so much. And first and foremost, it's good to see you again. And I have to say, you were just awarded the Environmental Achievement Award by the National Caucus of Environmental Legislators. So congratulations on that. It's well-deserved. Thanks. Thanks. I'm uh, excited about that. And, uh, you know, the National uh, Caucus of Environmental Legislators is a great place to share our progress with legislators from the other 49 states and also hear about what they're doing. Um, I was pleased to share that with, with my colleague, Senator Carlisle. And, uh, you know, we are not the only state doing great stuff on climate. So it's been great to hear about what Oregon and Colorado and Vermont and so many other states are doing because we have a lot of great exchanges to make in terms of our, our uh, policy wins. It's a collaborative effort for sure, but our state is very lucky to have your service. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I want to talk about some of the successes from this year's session, and I want to start with your bill, the Clean Fuel Standard. This was the the big bill that passed this year, the Marquee Bill. Um, this will limit greenhouse gas emissions to 10% below 2017 levels by 2028, and by 20% by 2035. This bill took a couple of tries. I'll just start mm -hmm. by asking, why do you think it proved so challenging to pass? Yeah. Well, I think there's a few reasons. Um, you know, one is that the uh, the oil industry is a very vertically integrated industry, which means that um, Exxon is not just selling gas, refined gasoline to the gas station that sells it to you when you're filling up your car. They tend to be exploring for petroleum reserves, extracting those reserves, transporting them to the refinery, in many cases, refining them, transporting them from the refinery down to the gas, to, to the fuel depot, and then trans and then maybe owning the fuel depot, transporting them therefore from there to the gas station. So there's a lot of points in that process where a vertically integrated company like an oil company can make a lot of money. 
And uh, the clean fuel standard essentially went after that monopoly and said, we're not going to have a single source of transportation energy anymore. We're going to have to transition away from that monopoly. Um, and that's threatening to businesses that have enjoyed a monopoly for 100 years or, or more. Um, also, you know, and there's, I think, a lot of legitimate sensitivity among legislators around anything that might conceivably impact the price of gas. We had endless back and forth about this bill, about what might the potential impacts to the price of gas be. Uh, I continually pointed back to evidence from Oregon, which showed that like Oregon's had this policy for six years. Uh, the price of gas has not really changed in Oregon. It's actually today still cheaper to buy a gallon of gas in Oregon than it is to buy a gallon of gas in Washington. Um, and that it tends to be kind of a rounding error in the noise of how volatile the price of a gallon of gasoline is just in the absence of these policies. Uh, but the opponents really lean heavily into arguments about gas prices. And every time gas prices spiked a little bit, you know, tried to lean into that to spook some legislators. And, you know, unfortunately that was successful for several years, but their, their luck ran out this year. We were able to, um, to prevail. Yeah. I mean, generally, you never go broke when you're playing on people's fears. But fortunately, this time, as you say, uh, you prevailed. Um, I also want to talk about your Bill 1050. Um, uh, this regulates hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs. Um, it's a smaller percentage of greenhouse gases, but it's very potent, very pernicious. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, and, and specifically how your bill addresses this? Yeah. So hydrofluorocarbons are a class of chemicals that... Um, are much more potent in terms of their greenhouse gas potential than carbon dioxide, um, as much as 10,000 times more powerful by mass. Um, the most common hydrofluorocarbon used, and th these are these chemicals are tend to be used in refrigeration, um, whether that's for air conditioning or a refrigerator or otherwise. Sometimes they're also used as propellants, like in aerosol cans or in um, foam, different kinds of foam applications. Um, the most common one is, is about 2,000 times more powerful than, uh, than carbon dioxide. So, um, and that actually kind of understates their warming potential because we measure those, their, their warming potential relative to carbon dioxide on a 100-year lifespan. But these chemicals are actually, they do a whole lot more warming than that in the near term. So when we're looking at ways, how do we get ahead of the rapidly changing temperature on the Earth? This is one of the most impactful ways that we can do that is by getting ahead of these short-lived climate pollutants like hydrofluorocarbons, which are used, again, primarily in refrigeration, where we came into commerce to replace chlorofluorocarbons, which are the chemicals that depleted the ozone layer. So it's great that we're no longer depleting the ozone layer, but it's not good that the replacement chemicals that we use also contribute to climate change. So Washington is now one of the, you know, with California, we're the two national leading states on, on this. Uh, we have we a, a new strong program requiring that large refrigeration systems like those at your grocery store and larger, like at food processing plants and then other industrial plants, be checked for leaks. We have a lot of evidence that these large refrigeration systems leak heavily. Um, don't harm the climate if they're contained in the refrigerator. But as soon as they leak into the atmosphere, that's when that global warming impact happens. So we're going to require much more frequent checking for leaks, as well as we're going to have a schedule for the phase out of chemicals that have high global warming potential um, in air conditioning uh, systems. We passed a bill two years ago to phase out these high global warming potential chemicals from refrigerators. We're now phasing them out from air conditioners as well, which which constitutes the vast majority of their impact. So um, it's a little bit different than the normal climate fights we have about burning oil and gas and coal, um, but it's very high impact and it's very low cost. This is 
probably the lowest cost intervention that we can make for anybody who's read the book Drawdown. It's their number one recommendation as far as the best way to stop climate change in the short term. So you're, yeah, you're working across a number of different areas and uh, being effective in those different areas. And we very much thank you for, for doing uh, that work. And um, I, I do want to get your thoughts on the Climate Commitment Act. This mm-hmm. was uh, something that I think a number of people had mixed feelings about. So this works to meet Washington's goal of net zero emissions by 2050 by setting a cap on emissions for polluters. I do know that the House worked very, very hard to get uh, environmental justice and racial equity language in there and and also to make sure that the air quality around impacted communities would get monitored. I'll just ask you, Jen, what are your thoughts about the final bill? Yeah, um, I will say that it is a it is very nearly a holy grail climate policy to have a legally enforceable cap on Washington's greenhouse gas emissions. And to me, that is the central fact of the Climate Commitment Act is we now don't just have state greenhouse gas goals. We have a a legally enforceable cap on Washington's greenhouse gas emissions. And I am so proud of the suite of sector specific climate policies, whether the Clean Energy Transformation Act on electricity or the Clean Fuel Standard on transportation emissions. But we need an economy wide cap that says we will not emit more than we said we would in any given year. And this is the bill that does that. Um, I know that there's a lot of uh, questions about things like carbon offsets. I share those questions. I don't think carbon offsets are a silver bullet. Um, I don't think trading of emissions allowances is a silver bullet either. Um, But I do think that we have learned a ton from other jurisdictions, particularly California, who is the the only other state in the country that has an economy-wide cap on carbon pollution, um, from the ways that they failed. And there's two big ways that California failed, maybe three. One, uh, they... uh, allowed too much by way of carbon offsets. And that's where you say, oh, there's more trees growing than would otherwise have grown or some other kind of mechanism where we say there's less, the carbon's being sequestered somewhere, carbon emissions are being avoided somewhere. Those are hard to verify. It's very difficult to have an offset protocol that makes sure that those offsets are real. And that's one thing that's become more and more clear the longer we've had experience with them, which is why we limited them to only 5% of the total program coverage. Um, There's also the issue that California and Europe and the Northeastern United States, the Northeastern U.S. has a program that just covers electricity. Europe has a program that mostly just covers electricity and some industrial emissions. And then California has a program that covers everything like ours does. Um, They set their caps too high. They set the caps at a place where um, the the cap itself was not constraining emissions growth enough. So there were um, more allowances on the market than uh, actually drove the reductions that were needed. And we learned a lesson from that and made it very clear to the Department of Ecology that the cap will track the state's emissions targets, which are quite aggressive. We are going to experience a very steep drop in that cap that uh, other jurisdictions have not experienced. And that is a um, that is something that is going to have a real meaningful impact as we see that get implemented in the, in the years to come. So, yeah, so it sounds like you have taken the examples uh, from other uh, you know, jurisdictions, uh, countries even, that have, have led the way on this and, and applied it into this bill. Um, I want to move on and talk about the next session. But first, I really do want to get your thoughts on something that you and I discussed when we were preparing for this, which is the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, it's, it's not good news. I, I would love to get just your thoughts generally, but I'd also love to, think, I'd love, to, love to hear if you feel that this could inform state climate policy in any meaningful way in the next session yeah so um the new ipcc report which came out a week ago i think yesterday um 
is very sobering in terms of the reality check that it provides us in terms of what the range of scenarios um, as, as, as climate change continues could include. I will say this, it's not new information. Nothing in the IPCC's report is um, new science. It's a, it's a compendium of existing science kind of packaged by this authoritative body of, of climate scientists from all around the world. Um, to you know, clarify, this is the state of what current science says. It's it's scary, and the science already was scary. So I guess it doesn't, you know, for me, it doesn't make me more scared than it was before. I do hope that sort of packaging it in this way and the amount of press coverage, because I really think the media's response to climate change has improved enormously in the last couple of years, and I think we experience that in the political system as we see as we under, as more and more of our constituents who are maybe less informed about this issue now understand it at a level that they didn't before. Um, one of the things that I think provides some hope in the IPCC's report is one of the things that we've feared about climate change, that there were, might be these kind of feedback loops that could spiral out of control. Like, like one that you hear about is if the permafrost in the Arctic melts and all the methane contained in that permafrost escapes into the atmosphere, that that means that once we, once we start, you know, rolling down the hill of climate change, that it's unstoppable. That we, we just that no the human impact has has the ship has sailed and we can no longer stop climate change. The evidence doesn't really suggest that that's true. There are these feedback loops. There are ways in which climate impacts can magnify through things like permafrost melting, but the vast vast majority of the impact on um, the change in atmospheric temperatures is human emitted greenhouse gases. And so, um, to me, that means that we both uh, have greater responsibility but also greater ability to affect the future um, by making um, early, by taking early aggressive action to reduce our emissions, which is what we're doing here in Washington State. Thank you for putting that spin on it, particularly uh, with the action that we take here in Washington State. I, I always take a lot of solace from the work that we do here, and, and I think we are uh, leaders, and, and you are certainly one of the people who are leading the way on this. You know, we are uh, well over schedule, and I had some things that I wanted to ask you about, specifically bills that would uh, be in a reintroduced next session. But I think instead, we do have a couple of audience questions, uh, which I'd like to get to at the very end. But I'll just ask you, what are the things that you would like to focus on next year? Yeah. And what can, in what ways can we help you? Thanks. Well, I'll give you the three things that are highest on my list, um, and I'll try not to take too much time. One is a bill from last year that didn't. Well, two are bills from last year that didn't quite get done. Representative Alex Rammel's bill on decarbonizing uh, buildings. Um, the large now that we have a policy in place for transportation decarbonization, the largest sector uh, in Washington's emissions portfolio that we don't have sector-specific policy in place yet is residential buildings. And Representative Rammel's bill would uh, move rapidly to uh, electrify, particularly space heating and water heating, which are by far the greatest emitting applications in a residential building. Um, we need to make progress on that. Representative Davina Dewar's bill incorporating climate considerations in the State Growth Management Act. So as our land use patterns continue to um, develop, that we are uh, focusing growth on the places where it has the lowest greenhouse gas impact, essentially, where people have the easiest time using transit, where we can use existing infrastructure. Uh, uh, land use is a critical feedback loop with climate change. Um, finally, uh, methane emissions, um, like I was, all the things I said about hydrofluorocarbons also apply to methane. Methane is the number two most um, uh, impactful greenhouse gas in terms of its overall emissions. So we're looking very closely, Representative Dewar, Representative Shoemake and I and others 
at wastewater treatment plants, at landfills, at agriculture, at pipelines, at uh, food processing plants. Those tend to be kind of the largest categories of methane emissions. How can we reduce this short-lived climate pollutant, which again is part of how we slow overall climate change enough that we have a little bit more time, we can catch our breath a little bit and slow the progress towards the, the CO2-driven uh, slower burn uh, temperature increases that we will experience over the decades to come if we don't stop them. You're not going to believe this, but when I crowdsourced, those were the three things that people wanted to hear about. Yeah, so it's as great. if you you read our minds collectively. So wonderful. Um, uh, just a couple of audience questions for you. Uh, Mari asks, the Clean Energy Transformation Act that passed in 2019 mandated the state phase out coal-fired power plants. How is this progressing? Uh, great. So that bill, the bill that we passed in 2019, our 100% clean electricity bill requires that uh, coal-fired power be out of Washington electricity by 2025. Um, we're ahead of schedule on that. Um, the, uh, there's basically two major sources of coal power in Washington. One is the, the one coal plant within Washington, that's the Transalta plant in Centralia, which is closing ahead of schedule. The, the largest boilers at the plant have already closed and the rest of the plant will close well in advance of the 2025 deadline. And the other is the coal strip plant in Montana that we import um, a substantial amount of, of power from. Now, of course, it's not being burned in our borders, but we're using their power. We're accountable for those emissions. Coal strip is also scheduled to close ahead of schedule. Um, and it is because of the Clean Energy Transformation Act, as well as other laws that we passed in the state legislature, that that's happening ahead of schedule. That doesn't mean the plant is going to necessarily close entirely. We can only do so much to influence what happens in Montana and in Wyoming and in in other jurisdictions, but uh, the the enormous demand that we are creating for renewable electricity as a result of our phasing out of the, that coal power is um, is going to have great impacts um, across the whole region. Of course, the next step beyond that is we also need to phase out natural gas power. Um, you know, it's great that we're closing, we're getting all of our coal out of Washington power by 2025. Um, natural gas, we have a lot more natural gas plants currently operational in Washington State. Um, and we are working rapidly to phase those out in line with the Energy Trans Transformation Act, as well as new laws that we passed this year. But the, the Climate Commitment Act is going to be a substantial new pressure on uh, getting those natural gas plants closed faster than the Clean Energy Transformation Act would have otherwise required. That's great news. Um, one final question. Uh, Julie asks, and this is Julie Njewski with Indivisible Tacoma. Uh, small towns want businesses and residents to transition away from fossil fuels and toward renewables, but don't have the money to do it. How do you see the state's role in helping make this transition? I think she's talking about things like solar yeah. panels and, 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 and the like. Yeah. I mean, there's an enormous array of ways that we can invest dollars in decarbonizing our economies. Um, and, you know, I look at electric vehicle charging stations, I should, you know, certainly solar, but, you know, I talked about methane. What are the many ways in which we can invest state dollars in retrofitting a wastewater treatment plant to capture all of the methane they would have otherwise emitted, right? That's a great climate impact, capturing that gas before it gets to the atmosphere. Starting in 2023, when the Climate Commitment Act um, is implemented, we're going to have a pretty substantial new revenue stream into uh, the state of Washington that is dedicated to both mitigating and adapting uh, to climate change. And by mitigating, I mean reducing emissions. By adapting, I mean, um, you know, changing our, our landscape so that we are, are more resilient in the face of a changing climate. Um, I think that 
it is going we're not going to be able to spend that money until it starts coming in the door in 2023 about march 2023 is when we think that'll start um but right now we are already casting a very wide net about what are the investments we can make that reduce emissions the most the fastest and that's really the the principle that we want to be guided by as we make these investments of course we want to have co-benefits for air quality for communities uh economic development and all that but we are really starting to look at what how can we get the most bang for the buck in the emissions reductions knowing how urgent this problem is and we will be looking to people across the state to make recommendations over projects that you um know about in your communities that you think should should be looked at by the legislature as we look for how to allocate those dollars. Just one last thing before I let you go. Uh, the uh, Take Action Network is something that Indivisible worked with very closely this year in this online session. And we sent a number of emails. We sent a number of calls. We weighed in pro or con. Uh, we testified. Uh, just generally, what were your thoughts about the ways in which uh, grassroots and Indivisibles interacted this year? And uh, do you think that, that there were some aspects that were more effective than others? Yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, experienced the increased citizen lobbying efforts that that came from the Take Action Network. And I think that, you know, you, you kind of learned the, the format of the emails, right? So I, I could tell when there were, were, were emails to my committee um, that, you know, also included somebody's their their own legislators that, uh, oh, yes, this this is coming from Indivisible. And that and it was it was great because I think it is really impactful to communicate. I think the, the, the most important legislators for you to be in touch with are your own legislators because they're the ones who owe you the attention um, categorically. Um, but it's still good to talk to the committee members, even if committee members are getting a lot of emails, you know, of, you know, from, from people all across the state, that's, that's helpful too. Um, there's no substitute for building that relationship with your own lawmakers. And I know that that can be hard, particularly if they are not political, if they're, you know, say they're, conservative and you're not right that that's a challenge um but i would i would think for it is still worth holding them accountable holding their feet to the fire because they might you know maybe they're 90 percent of the time against you but 10 percent of the time looking like oh i'll throw a bone to those climate people well that might be the vote we need you know so um so i think that the the uh clear focus that the take action network was bringing to you know we can tell that this bill is an important bill and this is an important step in the process for it I would totally um, uh, thank you for that and encourage you to continue that kind of advocacy. Well, we thank you for the feedback. We thank you for your vision. We thank you for your work. Representative Joe Fitzgibbon, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, everybody. Our thanks again to Representative Joe Fitzgibbon, also Representatives Noel Frame and Jesse Johnson, and Senator Emily Randall. Special thanks to Kirsten Hansen, MJ Carlson, Hannah Floss, Jim Austin, Kevin Jones, Louise Pathé, and Robin Gettleman. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. The website is indivisiblepodcast.org, and the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.